Wow. How can we speak after such grandeur? And I don't even have bubbles to blow. But I'd like to offer a little prayer. Lord, there's much on my mind and in my heart. Grant me the wisdom and the words to communicate your love and your care. Amen. What's the resurrection mean to you? Has it altered your attitude and your actions? I think that's its place and purpose. And to see something of that purpose and power. I think it isn't just about releasing us for what's to come in Act Two. I think the resurrection act and presence is for us here and now. And if we miss the fact that that's to apply to us in the now, we deny something of its fullness and its meaning. Now, the gospel stories give us great insight and the parables of Jesus' presence that come out in each of the Gospels, all very different, all from another perspective, and you see them baffled into belief with the fear that ends in faith beginning at the empty tomb. Mark's presence was read to you, and how the disciples or those who came to the tomb were fascinated and fled. And then in Matthew, Mary appears and speaks out and said, you know, be careful. And Luke also, and then in Luke's passage, we have the appearance of Jesus in Emmaus Road and in Jerusalem. And John tenderly speaks with Mary. What a mosaic of meaning is laid out before us in these variations where each saw and felt the experience in a different way. I think that's for us, too, that we see and understand and feel that in a different way, our way, for our time. Paul added to this because he wasn't there But he had his Emmaus Road experience as he came to Damascus and was struck down by light and cried out, but who are you? And he said, the Lord whom you persecute. And Paul was transformed. And he said forever after in his letters that I saw the Lord three times. And Paul doesn't talk about Jesus again. He talks about the Lord because he experienced him and how how eloquently the letters portray that in his time. And history is replete with saints and sinners who met and understood and had appearances of the Lord coming. And there are many, and you know them, but 
I want to lift up one which for me has the great meaning and understanding, and that's Albert Schweitzer. Because he labored with, how do we understand this Jesus? And I've said to you before some of this, but I, I got it, it's gotten me in a new way this time. He comes as one unknown, without a name, as of old. By the lakeside he came to the men who knew him not. He speaks to us the same word. Follow thou me. And sets us to the task he has for us to fulfill in our time. He commands, and those who obey him, whether they be wise or simple, will reveal himself. Now the revelation comes, and this is critical to me, in the toils and conflicts and the sufferings through which they shall pass in his fellowship. And in an effable mystery, they shall learn in their own experience who he is. So the Lord hasn't come to make it a simple walk, but a pilgrimage that leads us through the perils and challenges and and the demands of our own time. And I think for me that's kind of made real by Mother Teresa because she said as she labored and said, well, how can you do this? And she said, but, but I see the face of Jesus in the dying man. It isn't just in a garden. It's in a place of suffering, a place of agony, where she sees the Lord coming through and experiences something of the joy of the Lord. Fifty years ago this year, Martin Luther King wrote the letter from the Birmingham jail to the political and religious powers of his time. And if anything was a reenactment of what Jesus was going through as he, that's right, as he went through the political and religious challenges of his time. He wrote a letter that I think is of Pauline eloquence to challenge the political and religious structures of that time to open hearts and open minds and open lives. Because the call of Jesus is that we are incarnate. And Luther got this because he said we're to be Christ to the other, to one another, to be present to one another, and to follow him individually and corporately. And that resurrection light, that presence of the Lord, I've, I've had some real interesting experiences in the last bit to, to help me feel the keenness and the power of it. We had a lovely Palm Sunday service. We, on Sunday afternoon, some of us from here took part, I only attended, to the magnificent rendition of 
of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony with the Greenwich Chorale and the Stamford Symphony. It was stunning. Stunning. You could not be there and see that a man deaf could could bring forth a sense of a presence and a power of joy as he caught it up in that great, great piece of work. Thursday night we gathered for a tenebrae service in the hall and had the Last Supper. And it was sublimely blessed in the end with the singing, Were you there when they crucified my Lord? How many times we have to ask, Are we there when he's crucified? And then on Friday, the choir again inspired us with the majesty of the music of the ages that captured the message and its meaning in word, in song, in power, and in grace. Thank you. What a gift. What a gift. But a moment that touched me amazingly of a risen Christ was Jack Danielson's ordination here in the church. And I hope many of you were there. It was a a moment of great force and power. Because here was a young man who grew up in this church, the cradle of his consciousness developed in the Sunday school and the youth group and Silver Lake and he went to seminary. And then in seminary he went to experiences beyond those halls to the tough places of Boston and the border conflict of our country and worked with that and, and, and developed a keen consciousness. And then when he came home the company that he brought with him of colleagues and professors and students from the seminary gave us a sense of of the church alive, concerned, compassionate, joyous. A sense of community I felt with those who came with him was outstanding. And to see how they related, related the word on the street as well as in the in this classroom or the other places and and, and in the world. An amazing gift. And may there be more. And as we look forward to what the church wants to be in the years ahead, we need to study that ordination. It's a moment of great insight and, and inspiration. But on March 4th, Krista Tippett interviewed... Greg Doyle, who is a Jesuit priest working in the war zones of Los Angeles and the projects of poverty and drugs and death. And for 20 years, he's been working in that area. Now, if I had the means, I'd give you all a copy of his book, which is Tattoos on the Heart, Stories of Boundless Compassion. You've got to read it. It's terrific. Because he talked about how he went into that area of... He went to hell because those projects 
where they were drugging and killing and warring and, and between the, the various groups. He was able to, to be present, not to bring, but to discover in them who they were, as John was saying, and to discover their own innate goodness. So over these years, he's helped them find a soul and consciousness so they could give up drugging because these are people who grew up in their teens thinking more of their funeral than their future and help them to find a place of commitment where they'd get off their, get their tattoos off and then he created the homeboy industry where they could have jobs and the retention of those who, who stayed out of hell and came into promise was about 75% when traditionally it's only 25 You see, my belief is the resurrection is the beginning of God's cleanup operation in the world. Not out of the world. In it. And he's depending upon us to be a part of it. Whereas Augustine and Tutor said, without us, he won't. And without him, he can't. What a challenge. What a challenge. But my concern is that the message of the resurrection of the human heart and soul and experience, not then, but now, not in the afterlife, but in this, has been muted distorted, denied, because it's really a message of transformation. Now, I've been accused, or I don't know say accused. Some people have said that I'm a little political. I don't think I'm political. I just think I'm biblical. Anything I'm talking about hasn't come out of a party. It's come out of the presence of understanding of him who would be our Lord. Because I believe keenly that the structures of our society are founded on the sand of selfishness. And you name them, you know them, you deal with them. When we're called upon to have a society that is just and merciful and compassionate, and justice not for the just, the for fortunate, but for the forgotten. You see, Christ came in in great humility, in great transparency, and the power was in his love. And this is what we got from Gandhi and King. 
And to analyze that society, they've got three books. Now, I don't expect you to remember them all right now, but if you want to get a grip on where we are, and I'll put it in my book notes next month, but it's Walter Wink's Engaging the Powers, a biblical scholar who has left us, but has left us with a great legacy. And then Walter Brueggemann, one of the great Old Testament scholars and preachers of our time, has written a book called Toward the, Toward the Common Good to understand how it's, we're, we're to be about for it's the, the good for all, common. And then Jim Wallace of Sojourners Community, Community tomorrow is publishing a book called On God's Side. And it's also Toward the Common Good. You see, in a society where we're so addicted to comfort rather than challenged to compassion, I think the Magna Carta of meaning comes out of the Beatitudes. Change the word. It isn't just blessed are. It's you're with it. If you can grieve and be humble and hunger and thirst after righteousness and practice mercy and make peace, we're with it where Jesus would have us be. I had a moment of great experience here. This place is a, is a wonderful place of, of discovery and understanding. And on March... Third, we had a youth service. And it was stunning. We had a report of our youth had come back from Nicaragua and the excitement that they had had there. And that's the church alive. That's the church in action. But one that struck me as a parable that I always carry was when we had right here the reading and then the enactment of Jesus with a woman at the well. Remember? And they, they stood here and, and the passage was read and then the Jesus person put, put a kind of a veil over the head of the woman at the well. Now the woman at the well was an outsider. She didn't belong. But Jesus said she belonged and, and he said, I thirst and she and he, he said, you know, who are you? And he said, well, I've got some water the likeness of which from which you'll never thirst again. And so when the young woman was walking away from the table, she had this veil on, but stunningly, the veil didn't end. It just flowed down with her as she went into the congregation. And you know, the Bible tells us, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness as a stream let it come that and we walk with our God in humility, that we hunger and thirst for him. But seeing that sense of it flowing into our lives, justice and mercy has floated in, has come into our lives. Can we live it? Because the resurrection means the opening of our consciousness the awareness of our eyes, amen, uh, so that we may see and hear and know 
And as Schweitzer said, as we labor in the complexity of our time, he will reveal to us who he is. And then you don't have to have any worry about what comes next. May God guide us. And may justice and mercy and humility flow from us and with us and among us. Amen.